Well, good evening, everyone. Please turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 is found on page 1173. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark's Gospel, and uh, we're continuing in these events of the Passion, uh, Christ in the upper room, and then gone into the garden, and then tonight we read of his arrest. So Mark chapter 14, we're going to read uh, verses 41 to 52. So we're going to start at verse 41, uh, just to get the end of the previous passage. So listen, this is God's word. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he come, as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber? As, it, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young, man laid hold of, the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth. And fled from them naked. Amen. May God bless us the reading of his word. Now in school I had to study two of William Shakespeare's works. One was Macbeth and the other was Julius Caesar. And in the play of Julius Caesar there is this famous line, A tu Brute, meaning and you Brutus? This is seen as one of the biggest betrayals in history when Brutus betrayed Julius Caesar by joining with the Roman senators who savagely stabbed Caesar to death. And what makes the betrayal so devastating is the fact that Brutus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Well, today in our passage, we read of another betrayal, even more famous than the betrayal of Julius Caesar. The betrayal of Jesus Christ by Judas Iscariot. And this betrayal was sealed with a kiss. And so I want you to notice in the midst of betrayal and desertion, Christ trusts in God's plan and he demonstrates love. And so when you kiss the Son, you can show love to others in the midst of betrayal and desertion. So firstly, notice as you face betrayal, Remember, Christ was also betrayed. So last time when we were in Mark's gospel, we were considering Jesus praying in the garden. 
Remember how he sought his father's will. Not my will, but your will be done. And so leaving that time of prayer, Jesus is resolute to do the will of God. And we read in verses 41 and 42 of how he wakes up his sleeping disciples saying, The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, Jesus, throughout his ministry, he frequently spoke of it not being his time. But now the time had come, and he knows it. Mark uses his favorite word immediately to begin our passage. Jesus' hour had come, and it would begin with betrayal. And yes, Jesus knew about this betrayal, but still it was shocking. We're so familiar with this event that maybe we don't consider just how shocking it really was. We read of Judas coming to him. And notice how Mark describes him here. He is one of the twelve. Judas is one of the twelve disciples whom Jesus had called. Judas witnessed, alongside the other eleven disciples, Jesus' teaching. Remember how Jesus taught with authority. His teaching impressed the crowds as being like no other teaching that made the religious leaders afraid. Judas saw Jesus perform many miracles, healing the sick, removing demons, calming storms, feeding thousands of people, even raising the dead. Judas had seen Jesus do some incredible things, signs that Jesus is the Christ. And Judas knew Jesus to be an honorable man, a man who never sinned. Judas knew Jesus to be God. And as a result, Judas went with the other disciples, and he also went around preaching. He also went around doing miracles in Christ's name. Judas is respected among the twelve, for he is the one who is in charge of the disciples' money. You don't give that responsibility to anyone, only to the one who is trustworthy, the one you are confident in. But something clearly happened to Judas. He grew cynical of Jesus. No longer did Judas trust him. No longer did he believe that Jesus is the one to bring in this new kingdom. Or the kingdom that Jesus was bringing was not the one that Judas was after. Judas wanted glory and blessing now without any suffering. Little did Judas realize that he would be the one who would begin the suffering that Christ had prophesied about. And we do get a sense of how this started for Judas. Yes, we know that Judas was in charge of the disciples' money, but he also stole from the treasury. And when Mary poured her expensive perfume over Jesus in her devotion to him, it was Judas who objected seeing it as a waste of money. And for Judas to betray Jesus, he did it for 30 pieces of silver. And so it appears that money and wealth had took hold of Judas's heart. He was greedy. He desired riches, seeing them as more valuable than anything than what Jesus had to offer him. Judas did not see Jesus for who he was. 
And that's very obvious in our passage when we read of Judas giving these instructions to the disciples uh, to take Jesus, to seize him and lead him away, or take him away securely. Clearly, Judas did not believe that Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God and thinking you can simply arrest him. So Judas, he leads this mob and is described as a great multitude They are made up of the guards from the temple. They are sent by the Jewish religious leaders. And they came with their swords and their clubs. They were out to intimidate, to scare Jesus. And it was nighttime. The light of the Passover moon was shining. But it was still dark enough that the mob depended on Judas to identify Jesus in among the disciples. And the signal would be that of a kiss. The one Judas kisses, he is Jesus. He is to be seized. And Judas comes up to Jesus immediately and calls him Rabbi, Rabbi, and kisses him. And in one sense, there's nothing abnormal about this. This is a sign of respect, to call him Rabbi. For Judas to kiss him, that's a normal way to greet someone. Back in Belfast, I was involved in ESL classes, and we had a number of students from all over Europe And the normal greeting was a kiss on the cheek. And depending on which European country they were from, well, that determined the number of kisses that you had to give and to receive. Well, this kiss that Judas gave was not normal. The word for kiss in verse 45 speaks of something more intense, a fervent kiss. This is a kiss that you would give not to an acquaintance, but to a close friend, someone you love. But Judas does not love Christ. Judas loves money. And so this is the depth of the betrayal, that he could take the symbol of love and use it to deceive. Judas's kiss was a kiss of death. Hughes writes, Judas's infamous kiss showed how low a human heart can go. How did Jesus respond? Well, Matthew's account, we read of Jesus calling him friend. And so even in Judas's betrayal, Jesus is reaching out to him, reminding Judas of their relationship, that we are friends. You do not betray a friend. But Judas is not that unique here. There are many who have spent time with Jesus by going to church, by hearing the gospel message, many who maybe even appears to have responded to that message. But over time, they grow cold. They lose their enthusiasm. Other things become more important. Like Judas, money becomes more enticing. But it could be other things. It could be vacation or family or friends or our work. And is that true of you? Is the way of Judas appealing to you? Not that anyone wants to betray, but are there other things in life that become more important to you than Jesus Christ, even to the extent that you would betray Jesus Christ to gain them? How Jesus responded to Judas is how he responds to you. Jesus did not hate Judas. He continued to love him. He really did love his enemies. That's a challenge for you if you have been betrayed by someone close to you, a family member, or a spouse, or a pastor, 
when they have inflicted great pain upon you and into your life. But as Jesus extended his love to Judas, that's also your call. You need to love those who have betrayed you. You need to point them back to the cross. J.C. Ryle writes, If there is one trial greater than another, it is a trial of being disappointed in those we love. It is a bitter cup which all true Christians have frequently to drink. Ministers feel them. Relations feel them. Friends feel them. One cistern after another proves to be broken and to hold no water. But let them take comfort in the thought that there is one unfailing friend, even Jesus, who can be touched with the feeling of their infirmities and has tasted of all their sorrows. Jesus knows what it is to see friends and disciples failing him in the hour of need, yet he bore it patiently and loved them notwithstanding all. He is never weary of forgiving, and so let us strive to do likewise. And so as you face betrayal, Remember, Christ was also betrayed. Well, then secondly, when you face injustice, trust in God's plan. When you face injustice, trust in God's plan. So we read of Jesus being arrested. And how did Jesus respond? Well, he pointed out the injustice of the whole thing. Here they are in the middle of the night seeking to arrest Jesus. They didn't do it during the day. Why not? Well, they're afraid of the people. And Jesus points that out. He tells them day after day that he was in the temple courts. It makes more sense to arrest him then. Why do they need this cover of darkness? Well, they need the cover of darkness to hide the evil and the injustice of what they are doing. And so Jesus is appealing to them. He is seeking to convict them to see their sinful actions. They've come to arrest him with swords and clubs. Why the need for these weapons? He asks, am I a robber? Does Jesus have a history of violence that they need to bring an armed response? The NIV translates it as, am I leading a rebellion? And so is Jesus starting this violent uprising like other so-called messiahs in the past? No, that's not the case. A couple of weeks ago, there was this mutiny in Russia where the leader of the Wagner group sought to rise up against Putin by leading his military might all the way to Moscow. And it all quickly stopped. No one knows why there was this such an abrupt end. But clearly, the leader of the Wagner group realized his situation was not good, that he did not have the upper hand. Well, Jesus He was never threatening these Jewish leaders by swords or weapons. His kingdom was not a kingdom of violence. And instead, we read the prophet Zechariah describing the kingdom in this way. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. My false religions use force. Islam uses the sword. Mormonism uses their wealth. Secularism uses its power to restrain and to silence. But the kingdom of God, it moves by the Spirit of God. You've heard the phrase of bringing a gun to a knife fight. Well, Jesus was neither responding with guns or knives. The mob's response was completely inappropriate. But it was according to Scripture. 
At the end of verse 49, Jesus says, but the scripture must be fulfilled. All that was happening that evening, it didn't happen by chance. No, Jesus is in charge. And he's submitting to God's plan. And so he recognized that scripture is being fulfilled that very night. This was God's plan for one of his closest disciples to betray him, as we sang in Psalm 49. For him to be treated like a criminal, as we can read in Isaiah 53, he was numbered with the transgressors. And as we'll consider in our next point, to be deserted by all his disciples. As Zachariah writes, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And so Jesus is not a victim of unfortunate events. He speaks of him being the one who lay, he speaks of himself being the one who would lay down his life in John's gospel. John 10, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This command I received from the Father. And so everything happening that evening, it was happening in accordance with God's plan of salvation. And Jesus is fulfilling it. And you must recognize that God continues to fulfill his plan in your life. And that includes the difficulties that you're facing and the hardships and the suffering that you face. Too often we question, why is this happening? But instead, trust in God's plan. Even with betrayal, you must recognize that God is sovereign. You are to trust him in this. Now, you must not become fatalistic. You are called to respond in the right way, to change what you can change. But all the while, you must see that God is working out his plan in your life and know that that plan is for your good. And so you must trust in that. Yes, it may not feel good, but God is working out his perfect plan in your life. And we know the good for why this was happening to Jesus that night. It was for your salvation. It was for my salvation. And possibly that's why we don't find the events as shocking as what it actually is, because we know what is being accomplished. Well, God is also accomplishing a plan in your life. And you will look back, and you will be thankful for what he has worked out in your life. So when you face injustice trust in God's plan. Well, thirdly, in your desertion, know that God will take you back, verses 50 to 52. So Christ's prophecy comes true. His disciples abandoned him. When they realized that Jesus would allow himself to be arrested, they ran away. They forgot all their promises, that they would never deny him, that they were ready to die with him. And then we have this strange account of this young man running away naked. What is this about? Only Mark includes this episode in his gospel. And so as a result, most of the commentators believe this man to be John Mark. John Mark lived in Jerusalem. The Last Supper was hosted in the upper room of his family home. A linen cloth, that suggests he was wealthy, and that fits Mark if he could live in this large home in Jerusalem. And so Mark is anonymously appearing in the gospel. He's writing himself into the account. 
Now, if you watch any Marvel movies, you often see Stan Lee making an appearance. It's to give credit to him as being the comic writer. Well, here was Mark, including himself in his own gospel. And notice how he describes himself. He says he is this young man, and this could be better described as being a valiant man. And Mark quickly and bravely went with Jesus and his disciples to the garden. And hence, that's why he's dressed in only a linen cloth. But when he too was going to be captured, Mark also fled like the rest of the disciples. But not only did he flee, he fled naked. His captors had managed to grab hold of his clothes. But Mark was willing to become naked rather than be left with Christ. Now, to be found naked is probably one of our worst nightmares. We would be so ashamed. Well, here Mark would prefer to be naked and ashamed than have the shame of being with Christ. And what Mark did here is not new. We constantly see the people who are excited and fervent, and then they desert Christ. They abandon the faith. They return to their friends and their old ways. And maybe this man is left anonymous for you to include your own name here. Are you also tempted to abandon Christ, especially when the, li- when the Christian life gets tough, when you're called to make a decision between Christ or a girlfriend or a boyfriend who you know is not a Christian? Who will you choose as young people? Or you're tempted to make money in a way that's maybe not above board. Will you choose to forgo that and honor Christ? What will you choose when you're put in a difficult position which compromises your standing as a Christian? Are you willing to speak up? Or are you frightened into silence? The temptation to abandon Christ, to desert him, is real. Too often we are ashamed to admit that we are followers of Christ. Nakedness in the Bible, it points to shame. And so this is a shameful thing that Mark did. But he's not the first person to be found naked in the garden. Adam and Eve were also exposed when they deserted God. Instead of following him and obeying his commands, they disobeyed. They felt the shame of that when they discovered themselves to be naked. Jesus Christ The second Adam did not fall away when he was in the garden, even though he was all alone. No one wanted to be anywhere near him. No one stood by him. Ferguson writes, he would stand alone as Savior because he alone was fit to bear the judgment of God in our place. So in the garden, Jesus stood firm. His own disciples were desperate to get away from him. But Jesus took the shame. He sacrificed himself and his reputation to serve these disciples, to serve you. For by doing so, it is the only way for deserters to come back. For while Jesus prophesied that all the disciples would scatter, he also prophesied that he would see them again in Galilee. Yes, the disciples deserted him. But a few weeks later, they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they would soon be preaching 
about Christ in the temple courts. And so desertion does not have to be the end. If you come back to Christ, if you repent of your sin, you will know his presence. And Christ will take you back. Well, fourthly, let's notice Christ faced betrayal, injustice, and desertion, yet he showed love, and you're to do likewise. So in this very dark passage, in verses 46 and 47, we see this glimmer of hope and light. In the frustration of Christ's arrest, we read of the high priest's ear being cut off. Now in John's gospel, we get some more details. It was Peter who pulled out a hidden sword. Here is Peter, ready to die with Christ. Hughes in his commentary explains that the high priest's servant, Malchus, was wearing a helmet. And so as the sword came down on the helmet, it came down the right side of his head, removing his ear, which was exposed. And this showed that Peter is not that different to Judas. He did not understand the kingdom that Christ was bringing in. Peter's natural instinct was to fight. And this is a worldly mindset. We use money or power or politics to battle with this world. Keller writes, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. This is how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. My revolution comes without the sword. It is the first true revolution. Peter thought he was serving Christ, even defending Christ. But the opposite was actually true. This is not part of Christ's plan. Calvin writes to Peter, No thanks to him that Christ was not kept from death, and that his name was not a perpetual disgrace. And so sadly, as Christians, we can be guilty of lopping off people's ears rather than pointing them to Christ. How many well-intentioned Christians have only caused more harm than good? They act all self-righteous by their actions, but all they're being is a distraction. And so Christ tells Peter off by telling him, return your sword. Jesus could easily have destroyed this mob. He could have called upon a legion of angels to help him. But that's not how Jesus fights. Instead, we read in Luke's account of Jesus healing the detached ear, reaching out in love to Malchus, who had come to the garden that evening to arrest Jesus. And so Christ is giving you an example in how you are to respond when you are attacked. You're not to get angry. You're not to become silent. But you are to love. Wilmshurst says we keep on loving through the power of the Spirit, who can enable us to love anyone. We are to love people all the way into the kingdom, even if they are people who hate and despise us. Isn't that what Jesus did? Well, finally, let's notice. Kiss the Son and find refuge in him. Psalm 2. Keller writes, When you see Jesus caring for the poor, forgiving his enemies without bitterness, sacrificing his life for others, living perfectly loving and perfectly sinless life, you say, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't. 
Jesus Christ as only an example will crush you. You will never be able to live up to it. Jesus Christ as the Lamb will save you. So when you have faced betrayal or injustice, when you have been deserted by one of your closest friends, it is impossible to simply move on or shake it off. Your mind will always find itself going over what had happened. Even your dreams are full of what happened and what should have happened. It's near impossible by yourself to love, for you're feeling anxious and afraid. And so Christ, as an example, can do nothing for you. But as Keller said, Christ is more than an example. He is your Savior. And Psalm 2 also speaks about kissing Jesus. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. To kiss someone isn't simply to show your love, but to kiss is also to show your devotion, your submission, your worship. And so Judas kissed Jesus, taking this symbol of worship and twisting it into something of high treason. Instead, you are to kiss the Son, worship Him, and trust in Him that you are secure. That doesn't mean your fears and your anxieties will disappear. But it should quiet them. The safety and the refuge that you have in Christ, which is eternal, that should speak volumes into your life. And so the hatred and the fear you have to the one who hurt you, it can be transformed into love and grace. Keller writes, it's not the end of the world if somebody takes advantage of me or if my money is gone or if my career doesn't develop as I might like. I'm not controlled by that fear anymore. You're replacing the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. Christ is the king and he brings you into his kingdom. It's a place of refuge. It's greater than anything in this world. And so from this place of refuge... You can love others. And so in the midst of betrayal and desertion, Christ trusts in God's plan and demonstrates love. And when you kiss the Son, you too can show love to others when you're betrayed or deserted. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This is a heavy account of the betrayal that Christ faced and endured. And many of us have also faced betrayal in our lives. We're still hurting from it. But we thank you that we have a Savior who can sympathize with us, who knows what it is like. And so help us to be like Christ, to trust in your plan when we face hardship and injustice, knowing that you are working it out for our good. Forgive us, Lord, when we are like Mark and the other disciples, deserting you, seeking, for you, seeking instead this world. Instead, that we would repent and we would turn to you, knowing in you there is forgiveness. And so help us, Lord, to respond with love to those who have hurt us. We realize in our own strength we cannot do this. But since we are in Christ, we are in the refuge that we have in him, we can show the love and help. And so we pray in Jesus' name and in his strength. Amen. Well, let's sing Psalm 2a. This is the psalm that speaks of kissing the Son, not out of betrayal like Judas.
but out of submission and worship for Jesus alone. He is the King. Let's praise our King singing Psalm 2a. Let's stand and praise him.